0: This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was a conversation we had planned to have when John DeFries took over as head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. He is the first Native Hawaiian to get into the driver's seat. We were intrigued to learn he was born and raised in Waikiki, and there were hopes he could bring a sensitivity to the post because of that perspective. How do we create a better experience for visitors and residents, particularly when we know this pandemic is not over? Can we really manage tourists? How do we reduce the influx of visitors from the record 10 million we saw just before the pandemic hit? We're revisiting that conversation today. It started on the Diamond Head side of Waikiki at the end of a tiny street that some 70 years ago, DeFreeze called home. We did have to dodge delivery vans and mopeds. So we're standing here on Cartwright, right, where your house used to be. (laughs) So tell us about that
1: 551 Cartwright road, which today there is a, what amounts to be an equivalent of a four story apartment complex, which at one time our family home was here. So um, it was myself. I had two younger brothers at that time, my parents, Bunch of uncles. It was a pretty substantial house, and and I would imagine there were at least like twelve adults in there, on two different floors, including my parents. And um, and so this was, you know, a f- front yard. We had an emu. I, I can recall a lot of social events here, and uh, it served as kind of a family hub, and, and the emu. You know, it was my grandfather's pride and joy and was used quite often. People from the neighborhood they could hear it, they could smell it, and then a couple of them would bring their ethnic dish to put in the emu. And uh, but this was very local. I mean there were we had Japanese neighbors, Chinese, Portuguese, Samoan, Hawaiian, you know, and people talk about international conferences and conventions that come to Hawaii. And I said, you know, on Cartwright Road, it was like an international convention.
0: Today, we're standing here in this lot. There's high rises down either end? Yeah, there was nothing at that
1: time more than two stories, right? And I can remember on Lemon Road, a apartment complex. So what, for me as a child, was watching the first kind of high rise, and maybe it was seven or eight floors. You know, and uh, and I thought it was bigger than life, uh, but here we are, what, 69 years later.
0: Well, you've got mopeds, you've got delivery trucks, you've got yeah, you've got the Hyatt Hotel across the way. Uh, right. But you went to Jefferson Elementary School. I went to Jefferson Elementary.
2: The
1: school is about a block and a half from our home, so it's easy to walk to and from. Went there from kindergarten through the sixth grade. And then what was notable about the campus was there, it doesn't stand anymore, but there was a major administration building in the middle of the campus, principal's office, infirmary, that kind of thing. And my grandfather was the contractor who actually built it. So, our family has kind of deeply rooted in in Waikiki in that sense. And uh, there are a lot of Hawaiian families. I mean, uh, the Kalima family, the Jesse Kalima family, uh, were music notables, were there. And there was a famous steel guitar player and composer named Johnny Alameda.
2: Yes. Very,
1: very. uh, prolific uh, composer, he lived there too. And there was a period of about a year where I took steel guitar lessons from him. think about it now within a thousand yard radius from where we lived you had the beach of course you had the zoo you had the aquarium you had the queen surf nightclub and then there was a polo field in the middle of Kapiolani Park and where the tennis courts are today at Diamond Head was a horse stables which then moved to Waimanalo to make way for the, the tennis and then you also had a golf driving range. You had Waikiki Shell, the fire department, the library, you had recreational boating at that time in the Alawai. So for a young kid growing up, I mean you know, it was like Disneyland, um, you know, in addition to what was happening in the Ever direction as hotels were beginning to, uh, to be built. So, you know, when I think about Waikiki in that sense, in that those from birth to 11, um, it holds a very special place actually. And it's ironic that I'm kind of like back here, right? After 30 years in Kona, um, so it goes. It feels like full circle to me.
0: Well, you shared with me that uh, you were Mayday King at, at the elementary school, <laughs> Mr. Aloha. I mean, you're kind of doing the same thing. <laughs>
1: well, actually, in the second grade and in the sixth grade. So pe- people say, how do you get it in the second grade? I said maybe I was the biggest guy on the campus in the second grade too, but. No, I, yeah, that was part of the whole cultural, you know, thing. So, you know, what was big then when I was growing up was uh, wrestling, local wrestling. And, uh, and one guy who was very uh, well-known was a guy named Lord Tallyho Lear's, And he had a daughter named Laura, who was in my second grade class and then ended up at Punahou, and we both graduated together. So, Laura and I have known each other a long time. Her son, Dylan Ching, is the executive in charge of TS Restaurants, which includes Dukes on the beach.
0: He's still a part of Waikiki.
1: He's still a big part of Waikiki, as was his grandfather, uh, Lord Blears. And then I believe the family moved out to Makaha, They were a big surf family as well. So yeah, those are kind of the things that come to mind back then. You know, the point I want to make is that it was a a very local neighborhood, you know, and when I think about the visitor experience today as compared to that early period, you know, and I've read a number of studies that talk about the fact that You know, Waikiki in some ways has lost a Kamaina charm because there are no local families in in that fabric, right? And, uh, but I can remember a time when there was.
0: During the pandemic, I would walk through here uh, and I saw how wonderfully crowd-free it was. It was delightful to be back on the beach again. Sure. And I told my kids, you better go out there now. Well, you know, well, there's, there's plenty room. And then I just was walking uh, along the beach yesterday and was just really kind of shocked. I mean, I knew, yeah. you know, the crowds were back, yeah. but I think when you're actually in there and you see how different it is and, and, uh, and it is a different experience.
1: You know, it is. And, and I think what's important to note right now is that there really is no competition, right? I mean, the international destinations that typically compete for the same market that we do in tourism are not open. My instinct says you'll start to see this stabilize. So
0: there'll itself. be an adjustment, a market yeah, adjustment.
1: There will be a, The market will have to adjust because what's going to happen is when they return to the market, they're going to have to compete they're gonna go heavy with discounts. They're gonna go... And what you're gonna see is a number of airlines that redirect air seats currently coming into Hawaii, now being redirected back to the international destinations. So um, when I started at HDA, the one thing I don't think any of us factored was the fact that we would reemerge in the absence of that competition. And so it's created this like windfall uh, not all of it's pretty, and, and it's creating, you know, some conflicts in key areas that, that we still have to manage. But, you know, I, I, I use this metaphor really to talk about the system of tourism. But it's like when you turn off your house plumbing for 10 months, when you turn it back on, you don't want to drink the first water. <laughs> This is true. <laughs> you know, and then, and, but but you also don't want to condemn the, the source from where that water is coming from. Because the system needs to flush itself, right? And, and it's kind of the way I view this. Um, I don't expect everybody to appreciate that. But I knew that the reopening of tourism and the economy was not going to be mere flipping of the switch, right? This was going to open uneven. The industry as a, a system, again, a delivery system of services, you know, got injured. You know, you, you're shutting off wings of your hotel or you're shutting the whole thing down. Yes, yeah,
0: traumatized. You're,
1: you're laying off a whole bunch of people. And the community and the industry has gone through an incredible shock. I won't predict what's going to happen, but it's all going to be driven by data. And we just have to be ready to be really responsive.
0: We will continue our walk and talk through Waikiki with John DeFries, head of the HTA. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. HTA's John DeFries and I continue to walk down toward the beach. We stopped at the corner of Kalakaua and Kapahulu. Those months that local residents dominated the landscape were gone.
1: So the, the capacity to receive visitors is actually expanding as we speak. At a time when uh, communities throughout our state are calling for less time out, uh, enough right? So I knew coming into HTA that whatever change we were would contemplate or initiate was going to happen inside a free enterprise system. Now the point I want to emphasize is that again tourism is not just a standalone entity. It actually is held together by infrastructure that is county government, state government, federal government, private sector. So it's going to be critical that leaders from all of those entities come together and agree on some kind of vision for Hawaii's future. This time we need to push it out to a, to a point where we can actually start to contemplate this, not in terms of years or decades, but in terms of generations. What's it gonna take, what's life gonna be like for the folks three generations from now? And and the, the fact is that I hold that elected officials and business leaders and community leaders have the capacity to see that far because it's where their great-grandchildren will live. And we do need to take the time and look at what we see in that long view, right? So the, not to, the, Not to oversimplify it, but if I said to a hundred Kama'aina who I don't know, if I said to them, hey, three generations from now, would you like to see the natural resource base of Hawaii in better condition then than it is today? I have no doubt in my mind all hundred will say yes. Um, If I said, do you want to see Hawaiian language and Hawaiian traditions and culture flourishing to a greater degree? three generations from now than it is doing today you know chances are everybody would agree to that and they'd agree to uh, wanting to protect our communal way of life right.
0: So yeah. for the short view yeah. you know I mean when you took over at hta uh, you probably had no way of looking into the crystal ball to see that lawmakers wanted to rethink the funding of hta how do you reconcile that for the short term i
1: encourage everybody to understand that there is it's a fragile system that you can lose markets as quickly as you can get them so we just have to pay attention to it i understand the pushback i understand the concern you know one legislator told me john six million visitors, but generate the same tax revenue. But I think, you know, when, when people look at Hawaii tourism, you want to look at your own behavioral patterns as well when you travel out of state, right? Do you really say, I don't think I should go there because I don't spend enough per day. And I, I know that it's easier said than done than we only want high spending visitors here, right? We have some immediate, challenges that we've got to deal with and manage. We've got some mid-range things to watch out and see this market correction that happens when the competition uh, comes back. Our own infrastructure is being tested. Things like our water capacity, right, are going to define where that threshold is. What makes me optimistic is the young leaders I see in the two generations behind me who are uh, Akamai, caring, much more tuned in to nature and the environment, still idealistic enough to believe that there can be a better way. So working with that uh, age group is actually what inspires me most right now. So you're hopeful? Yeah, oh God, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I wanna tell you one thing about about Kapahulu Avenue. Kapahulu used to be a stream that was actually fed from Palolo and that whole St. Louis Heights and that end of Manoa. But I can remember my my uncles talking to me about how when the stream was here, they used to be able to bring their fishing gear on inflated tubes and floaters, and they could just throw the nets into the stream and then the stream would carry it out to, to the ocean, right?
0: Now it's all asphalt. Now it's all asphalt. Down to the wall. There's
1: an iconic song, they they paved paradise, put up a parking lot, Joni Mitchell. So what most people don't know is Joni Mitchell came to Hawaii in 1970 and stayed at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. And when she opened the drapes in her room, the the curtains, she saw this massive parking lot. And that's what inspired that song
3: paradise, put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paid paradise, put up a parking lot choo
0: took all the trees,
3: put them in a tree museum charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay fair
1: and put up a parking lot. You know, and she talks about um, they took all the trees and put them in a tree museum. They charge a dollar and a half just to see them. It's her trip to Foster Botanical Garden. Ah. And then in, in the lyrics, it talks about a, 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 a pink hotel, a boutique, and it's got a, I forget the actual lyrics, but she's actually capturing her experience back then. So think about that. Think about one independent traveler who in 1970, 52 years ago, was beginning to express a concern over... The impact to the natural environment—a tourist, not somebody who lived here—and
0: so, so the little boy that grew up on Cartwright, yep, he's an older guy now. <laughs> what does he that, see? That, well, that little that little
1: boy still lives with him. Um, my wife will attest to that, uh, and my sister. But what what I see is the, the urgency for us to be able to convene and adopt a vision for Hawaii. Hawaii deserves it. Hawaii deserves a vision. And and part of that vision is where tourism is related. And, and this is something that I've discussed at length with Navigator Nainoa Thompson, right? Uh, right after he came home from the worldwide voyage and he had seen, you know, parts of the world and he felt this way before he left, but it reconfirmed it when he came home is that the world needs a school to teach the people of the world how to live in better harmony with your your, yourselves, your family, your neighborhood, your environment. And that people like myself and him kind of believe that uh, Hawaii has that potential. We're not going to get there overnight, but again, when I reference some of the work going on in communities, Nonprofit organizations that are beginning to restore low e, restore the natural flow of fresh water. All of that is signaling a shift. The challenge is how do we help that scale, right? As an industry, what can we learn from that? Now, what that little boy that lived in the way he sees today is that there are certain areas, especially in the natural environment, some of these areas need time each year to replenish itself, to reproduce, right? And and we have to be bold enough in industry to say X amount of weeks, this time of the year, every year, this is closed off to human activity. We have to be able to demonstrate that kind of restraint, right? And it is the 21st century version of the kapu, right? And the kapu that I learned from the elders in my family. It wasn't about human deprivation. It wasn't like you as a human being are deprived from eating that fish. It was about recognizing that that fish during that time of the year in this area reproduces. And so give them space, give them time. So we we do have to adopt that attitude. I think it's about relearning how to live on an island. And that's what we've forgotten. We behave like we live on continents. The way we consume, the way we create waste, the way we treat waste. And I actually believe that over the next generation or two, the visitor market is going to actually arc in that direction. They're going to look for that in making their choices of where to go, right? And, um, And so when you can get human consciousness to elevate, followed by human action and measurable results and you can get a commercial market to buy into that, then Hawaii will be on its way to reachieving some level of balance here.
0: We all want a better experience for everybody.
1: That's right. That's what we have in common. Yeah. yeah. And and some of the conflicts we're experiencing now in tourism actually emanates from bad behavior by the visitor, right? Touching the wildlife and not respecting certain things. And I'm talking to frontline restaurant and hotel workers who who see a difference in the clientele that they once served. And and many of them point to this greater sense of entitlement, right? And I think part of that is a result of being living under restrictions for more than a year and and having to, you know, take account of yourself and the the way you act. Um,
0: I guess if, if the May Day King still had his crown on, the crown is heavy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Actually what makes me hopeful is the fact that I went to the University of Hawaii for three semesters. When I left, I had more parking tickets than credits. (laughs) So tourism for me is very much like a university. It's a place, it wasn't because I didn't want to learn. It's just that I wasn't cut out at that time in the 70s to be at the university, um, even though I have a tremendous respect for the university today.
2: Well, this is the
0: university. This is the University <laughs> of Waikiki.
1: To, you know, you know a, a close friend of mine, was my mother's high school classmate was Don Hall. I used to refer to Don as the dean of the University of Waikiki. Yeah, because there, there's so much to learn. The point I want to make is I'm also somewhat protective of the industry because in in many ways, it's like my alma mater, right? It's the university I went to. It has problems right now, and I'm committed to helping lead in solving those problems.
2: Do remember? You?
0: That was John DeFries, the first Native Hawaiian to lead the Hawaii Tourism Authority during what may be the visitor industry's most challenging time. DeFries was born and raised in Waikiki. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Our conversation with HGA head John DeVries brought to mind another interview with director Chris Kahunahana. Chris VanderCook, former host of The Conversation, spoke with Kahunahana about his independent film Waikiki while it was still in production back in 2018. The film toured the circuit this year, casting light on the gritty side of paradise and the high-cost residents pay to maintain it.
3: There's an unlimited global demand for the idea of Hawaii as a paradise. And so when you think of Waikiki, it conjures up all these images of beautiful sandy beaches. Mm -hmm. A getaway. Yes, a getaway. But for the people who uh, live here, we understand that it's not always so simple. Uh, Paradise is something that does exist, but we don't get to live it every day.
2: How does your story reflect that?
3: I wanted to show Hawaii in... Every aspect of it—it's its beauty, its struggle, its connection, its its humanity, and its difficulties. And I thought the only way to do that was to uh, take a character, someone that we all know. She's the average Hawaii girl. grows up here, works hard, has three jobs. You know, struggles to survive. She's saving money to get her own place. But as you know, uh, Hawaii has one of the highest uh, rental prices, mm-hmm. highest property prices, and so it's it's hard. So she struggles to try to make ends meet, and this is something I think we from Hawaii v- intimately understand. I think a lot of people are feeling the same thing. It's not as easy as uh, people think it is.
2: Everyone, to some degree, who lives in Hawaii, has. it seems as if we all feel uh, some degree of obligation to kind of sell Hawaii, represent the state at its best, you know, show Hawaii for the, the place that we've come to love living in. What What is the effect of that sort of dark side view, do you think, on, on viewers?
3: You know, I don't think it's a dark side. I think it's just, it's more, it's realistic. It's an authentic point of view. It's like, as a Kanaka Maoli, you know, these are issues that we grew up with. It's like, mm-hmm. we see how hard it is, how hard it is for our, our parents to you know send their kids to school uh, keep a roof over their heads and it's it's tough i mean we all know hawaii has one of the highest per capita homelessness in the nation mm-hmm. so it's like as much as people want to believe hawaii is only a, a beautiful paradise it's it's uh realistically there's a lot of people
2: struggling give me if you would a quick sort of outline of the story and tell me how that
3: reflects your theme so the story's kind of an allegory. And it's a tragedy. The simple plot is we follow a girl on her normal life trying to make ends meet. And she runs into a person who she befriends. And they go on this journey together. And through that process, they form a friendship. And we soon realize that these people's lives aren't as simple as we would seem to want them to be. It's not as idyllic they need each other. They need friendship. They need connection to community. They need family. So simple plots: boy meets girl, friendship, and then you know how those things work. A out. journey. It's a journey. A, yeah. a discovery. Dis- journey of series. discovery. Yes, yes. But uh, but that's the that's the simple plot. And you know, being from Hawaii, we have this thing called kauna. Mm-hmm. Kauna is alternate meanings, deeper meanings than simple thought, simple ideas. Mm-hmm. So it acts as an allegory for the greater story, which is about, she represents what Hawaii has been going through. It's, we follow the aowai, or the water from the sky all the way through the ocean, and its disruption causes disruptions within our community. And it affects the health, the mental health, the uh, sustainability of the land. All these issues come into play and affect the characters in the screenplay.
2: What does Waikiki as a title
3: come to mean in the course of this story? So Waikiki, from a Hawaiian perspective, translated means bubbling water. The uh, rain from the mountain would flow in through Waikiki and come up through the land. It was Mm -hmm. very fertile. Mm -hmm. Um, But we all know what happened is that they built the alawai. They plugged up the natural flow of water Mm -hmm. to build Waikiki. And so as they spent, you know, billions of dollars annually to promote this idea of an idea like sandy beach you know if we you know we can just walk out and look at the alawai and realize that's not always you know, that's not accurate it's kind of an artificial environment
2: right it's a it's yeah. a wetland yeah. that got filled in mm-hmm. it, it were it in its original
3: state it wouldn't support high-rise hotels no no they have to change the, the topography of the land they have to change the flow of the water in order for them to be able to build, you know, the hotels to sustain the the economy of the of, uh, visitor industry, and every once in a while, you've got to add sand to those beaches, or else you're not going to have those either. And that's that's a controversial topic, but you know, we pull a lot of the sand to build all our uh, high rises and our freeways from Maui, and and uh, in that sand, you know, it's my Ivi kupuna, so it's my people are in those sands, and you know, them using it to build these high rises. No, you know, it, it's disheartening a lot, a lot of times.
2: Is that going to emerge as we, as we hear your story in the film?
3: The story, because it's a difficult story to tell, which touches on a lot of sensitive issues, it was hard to write. It's not a documentary, so I'm not trying to present it as fact. Like, right. this is the way things are. I just want to say, this is this is the environment that these characters live in. You know, we're affected by noise pollution. So, you know, as they're driving on the side of the road, we just get bom- bombarded with, like, the sound of traffic and mm-hmm. people and construction, the constant pounding into the, the aina, you know, of, of these... Uh, you know, yeah. and all day, every day, you can't... Uh, go without hearing helicopters fly overhead constantly or jets uh, military jets or planes Mm -hmm. and we're talking like in our valleys we're talking about as far away from the airport as you can get on this island and you still can't escape the sound of just like modernity and I think all these things affect people on a subconscious level and I think uh, hopefully people will feel that through the film
2: those pressures of modernity uh, that duration is not going to get reversed right uh, no, no, it's not. It's not. So, what's your take on how, our future, based on that?
3: Well, I think in a lot of places they're returning and understanding the value of native understandings of nature and native connection to nature, and as uh, so, a lot in science they're discovering a lot of things that the native people knew for a long time. Yeah, there becomes a problem when we just say this one culture is the the the. What an, uh, humanity encompasses only this culture. As we lose languages, we lose understanding. We live, lose ike. As we lo- lose the Hawaiian language, Ola Hawai'i, mm-hmm. we don't. We lose a lot of the understandings of our environment. Um, I think, in order to pr- to create a more sustainable, healthy environment for all Hawai'i citizens, global citizens, we have to reconnect to our um, to the aina, to the land, to you know, so in the film, the it comes down to this one olelo noa, which is He ali'i kaaina, he kawa ke kanaka, he ali'i kaaina, he kawa ke kanaka, which means the land is the chief, the people are are merely servants. So we are responsible for the land versus seeing the land as a commodity to, you know, profit off of or to make money off of mm. or It's like we need to take care of the the earth, and the earth will take care of us.
0: That was Chris Vandercook, former host of The Conversation. He spoke with director Chris Kahunahana about the independent film Waikiki back in 2018. The high cost of living, financial instability, those topics have only become more relevant as Hawaii residents have pushed through the pandemic over these past two years. Waikiki was released to acclaim last year. Kahunahana says he didn't set out to make a dark film. He just wanted to show a more real representation of the world we live in. We'll have links to more info about the film Waikiki on our website at Mm hawaiipublicradio.org. on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today we're taking a walk through Waikiki. It's Monday so the weekend's still fresh on our minds. We end this Hana Ho show today with a trip to the beach. Arts and culture reporter Noe Tanigawa met up with surf historian John Clark on a hot day on the beach across Kapi'ulani
4: Bandstand near the slopes of Diamond Head. Right now we're we're sitting uh, on the shore of Waikiki and I think that The thing that most people don't realize is that Waikiki is actually a bay, and it's a bay on the west side of Diamond Head. And that bay was created by fresh water flowing from the inland valleys, Makiki, Manoa, and Palolo. All of the streams from those three coastal valleys emptied into Waikiki. So Waikiki Beach was actually a narrow barrier sand beach between the wetlands created by these three streams and the ocean. So all of that fresh water created this bay. And at the same time, when it made the bay, it made these fantastic surf breaks from one end of the bay to the other. I love that picture. Waikiki means bubbling springs, and so it was named for the fresh water that comes up still till this day. Now, let me just get back to the streams for one second. The streams coming out of those three valleys got trapped in the 1920s by the Alawai Canal. When the city fathers decided that they wanted to develop Waikiki as a resort, they knew that they couldn't deal with all of the freshwater uh, wetlands that were here, and still have a marketable resort. So they elected to put in the Alawai Canal, which trapped all of that s- stream water and channels it off to the west of Waikiki. Oh, it comes out at the boat harbor. It does. It comes out. Right, uh-huh, it yeah. comes out right at the Alawai boat harbor. Uh huh there are still freshwater springs all along the shoreline here. And people call that freshwater intrusion, where the springs actually just bubble up from below the bottom of the ocean. The surf spot that's just out in front of us right now is called Publix. And if you paddle out there, you hit cold patches and warm patches. And every time you hit a cold patch, you're going through spring water that's emerging from the ocean bottom.
0: And then Publix is the break out there. What's this break like?
4: This break is excellent. When you're surfing, you either go left or right. Right. When mm-hmm. you take off on a wave, if you go to your left, then that's called a left break. The reef here at Publix starts way outside and curves all the way into the shoreline. And that reef forms one of the longest lefts, left breaks on the South Shore. That's what Publix is famous for. It's famous for this dynamite left break. You know, I think
0: you're referring to a kind of ride that Waikiki
4: is about. You know, it's yes. that long laid yes.
0: back ride. Yes.
4: Exactly. <laughs> That's what traditional <laughs> surfing was all about. Long laid back rides.
0: So different.
4: So different. The native Hawaiians, when they surf, that's what they went for. They went for distance. When they caught a wave, they wanted to ride a long ways. They wanted to ride from as far out as they could go um, all the way into the beach if they could get that far. So, a very different approach to surfing than what we see today, which is very sophisticated maneuvers where you're using, the, basically, the face of a wave as a canvas to perform.
0: Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, the summertime is the South Shore swell. It is. What is that swell like? <laughs> what does it mean?
4: The Hawaiian Islands basically sit in the middle of the Pacific, right? So during the winter months, we get storms up in the North Pacific that create all of our winter surf on the North Shores. During the summer months, we get the storms in the South Pacific that send waves to us. So basically we're this group of islands in the middle of the Pacific that gets surf all year around, either from the north of us or from the south of us. Ah, uh-huh. right. And what are these waves from the south of us like? Because they're coming from the southern hemisphere and we're actually north of the equator, they have to travel farther. So they're usually not as big or as dangerous as the North Shore. The storms uh, the storms up north of us are closer to us, so the waves have a much greater impact. Mm-hmm. One big cutoff point when you're choosing your spot would be, is it a left or a right? Yes, exactly. Along this shoreline, what, you got a lot of options? You do. Uh, Publix out here is, is known as one of the best lefts in Waikiki. Ala Moana Bowls at the other end of Waikiki is another famous left. When you come into the heart of Waikiki here, you have Queen Surf. Queen Surf is known as a right. So every spot is really defined, at least initially, by whether it's a left or a right. Uh, (laughs) And then what? How far a paddle? (laughs) Yes, how far a paddle it is and how crowded it is. and, (laughs) And you know, All of the reefs out here don't get hit the same by every swell direction. Mm. Um, Sometimes if the swell direction is coming from a certain angle, they hit certain reefs better than other reefs. All of that plays into your personal spot selection when you're going to decide where you're going to paddle out.
0: And and tell me, just sort of the etiquette out there, if you're a real new You don't want to be.
4: (laughs) 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 There's a lot to that because if you're going to the right, all these other people get on or what? That's called a party wave. And in certain areas, party waves are acceptable. Oh, Like right here in Waikiki, the famous beginner spot there is called canoes. It's straight out from the Moana Hotel. Yep. Okay, canoes. And it's called that because the outrigger canoes catch waves out there Exactly.
0: You can get mowed down by actual Uh,
4: canoes there. You you don't want that to happen. That would hurt. That would hurt. Canoes is also where all of the beach services take their, the beach boys take their lessons. So it's accepted out there that you have a lot of beginners and that every wave that comes through, everybody's going to try and catch it because everybody wants to get a ride and that's where all the beach boys are with their lessons and they're pushing people into these waves so you might get 10 or 15 people on one wave just riding straight towards shore (laughs) I know. so that's a party wave and that's acceptable that's acceptable at that surf spot
0: don't you think that is more how how it was done in the old days party waves oh yes
4: it was that was partly determined by the equipment they were using Back in the old days, the traditional days, the boards were really heavy, made out of coal. They were long, they were heavy, they didn't have fins on the bottom. You can't steer that kind of thing. No, it's hard. It's hard. (laughs) It's very hard to steer. So everybody would catch the wave together, and they would basically just glide towards shore, just like an outrigger canoe would. So party waves were the norm, but today they're not.
0: Do you know anything about that beach boy culture that there might be a wisp of left? Oh, the beach
4: boy culture is still here. It started in the late 1890s. There were a group of uh, Native Hawaiians here on the beach that formed a little hui. And they started giving commercial canoe rides. That was in 1897, actually. And then right at the turn of the century, is when the hotels came. You know, the Moana in 1901, Hale Kalani in 1917, Royal Hawaii in 1927. As soon as the hotels, the big hotels, arrived on Waikiki Beach, that's when the Beach Boys really started to get into action. Oh. And that's when all of the beach services started forming. The Beach Boys are there in the middle of all of that. You know servicing the clientele for the hotels offering
0: surfing lessons and canoe rides and
4: canoe rides yes Ah. so right at the turn of the 1900s that's when it all starts to happen
0: what was the biggest moment for that do you think
4: that continued right on up until world war ii world war ii kind of put a stop on everything and then the beach boy service picked up again after the war oh. when the beaches were reopened that kind of thing
0: right and then they had a real heyday with all the stars coming in right sure
4: all of the movie stars and then you get into um you know statehood in 1959 yep. right yeah. right so statehood focuses a lot of attention now on the hawaiian islands and waikiki just really started to expand who are some of the people that kind of come to, to mind in terms of beach history in Waikiki? Certainly, we have to go back to Duke Kahanamoku. Duke Kahanamoku was among those original beach boys. He was born in 1890. Oh. By the time the beach boys are organizing, he's already in his teens and early 20s, mm-hmm. and he's in the middle of it. In the early 1900s, the Outrigger Canoe Club forms and then Huinalo forms and and Duke is part of the Huinalo crew.
0: I've gotta find out one of these days how he ever got to the Olympics off of the beach here at Puhio Beach.
4: You know, I I read an article that quoted Duke on his style of swimming, which was a crawl stroke, a freestyle crawl stroke. And he said that Hawaiians used the crawl stroke before they ever saw it anywhere else. But traditional Hawaiians used it to body surf because they didn't have fins. So they developed this overhand crawl stroke freestyle to catch a wave and body it. That was his explanation of his style of swimming and it wasn't something that he learned outside of the Long islands. Makes sense, actually, because you've got to pull hard at that point. Yes, you do. He was not only an exceptional swimmer, but he was an exceptional athlete. He was big, he was strong, he had a powerful kick. He already used his version of the freestyle, so when he started competitive swimming, he was just blowing the other guys out of the water. The race courses that they did for competitive swimming back in the day, because they weren't in a swimming pool, they were just straightaway races. In other words, there weren't any walls; <laughs> there were just buoys,
0: uh-huh.
4: and there weren't any turns. When people realized he was doing all of these amazing times, you have to realize that he was doing them number one in a boat harbor, just in a
0: chop. For yeah, I know. Yeah.
4: Whatever the conditions were, right? So when he actually got into a swimming pool, a tank as they called him back in the day, he was into fresh water and having walls where you could make a turn and push off. So his times got even better. Duke Kahanamoku, of course, Olympic swimmer, one of the, the stellar personalities here in Waikiki. Now he was famous for a ride that went for over a mile.
0: Oh, come on. And
4: straight out from Publix, okay. straight out in the blue out there, you can see blue water away on the horizon. Yeah,
0: the darkest blue.
4: The darkest blue out there, there's a surf spot that's called Castles. The Hawaiians called it Kalihua Bay. They had their own name for all the surf spots. Uh-huh. Duke caught a wave in 1916 at he had castles, and he rode it, it was a left, okay. and he rode it all the way into Waikiki Beach, right in front of the Moana Hotel. Oh, no! And surfers till this day try to duplicate that ride. A few of them have done it, but you have to have a, a perfect swell that's, that's lining up, and super big, right? <laughs> it has to be really big, and it has to be lining up just right and it has to connect all the way through to the heart of Waikiki Beach. That was HPR's arts and culture
0: reporter, Noe Tanagawa. She was speaking with surf historian, John Clark. The retired fire chief has written 10 books about Hawaii shorelines and place names. That's it for this Hanaho Show on Waikiki. Coming up tomorrow, our news director, Bill Dormans at the mic with a few reflections ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. How do we practice gratitude throughout the loss and hardship of this pandemic? Call our Talkback line. Tell us what you're thankful for. That's 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow and pick up the conversation.